Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. I'm excited to have you along as we're continuing a series called Singing the Blues, and we're working our way through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you that if you'd like to be a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi to help with our production costs, you can find out how to do that in the program notes that you'll see below. So we'd encourage you to think about that. Any level of, uh, of support would greatly be appreciated. Well, this is Season 3, Episode 3, and to the title of uh, today's podcast is The Chase is On, and we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, if you want to get your Bible ready so that you can follow along in just a second. On April 15th, 2013, we had a brutal reminder of how fragile life is and how vulnerable we can feel as a nation. Two bombs went off near the end of the Boston Marathon and killed three people, injured hundreds of others, including 17 who lost limbs. Two brothers uh, were tracked down, committed an act of domestic terrorism. But I can remember uh, how hearing about the bombing in Boston kind of made me feel sick in the pit of my stomach because I immediately thought of my sister-in-law, who's a very avid runner and had run the New York and the Boston Marathon in the past. And I couldn't remember if she was there um, as a competitor. And I, I just immediately wondered, was she okay? When something like this happens anywhere in the country, you know, it sort of affects us all. Later that week, it hit me that we're not alone in facing these kinds of tragedies. Terrible things like this happen all the time all over the world. During that same week on that Wednesday, a series of six coordinated car bombs killed 55 people in the city of Kirkuk in Iraq. 55. I mean, we lost three in Boston. So you can imagine the grief of all those families in Kirkuk. And scores of people were injured when a bomb exploded in the city of Bangalore in India near a political party office. Also that week, rockets were fired from Palestine into civilian neighborhoods in Israel, and civilians were caught in the crossfire and killed in the war in Syria. So there are a lot of people in this world who just want to blow things up and kill innocent people. And like with the Boston bombing, we wonder what could possibly motivate someone to commit such a heinous crime? What were they trying to accomplish? I think it's important to understand that these bombers are in some senses just like us. Just like us in that they're trying to find meaning in their lives, trying to figure out their purpose, their place in the world, but they're going about it in a destructive and evil way. All of us are engaged in this quest to discover what will meet the deepest needs and longings of our heart. Terrorists seek meaning for their lives by their devotion to a political cause or to a sick religious agenda. Maybe their minds are so filled with hate that they feel a sense of power when they inflict pain on others. Or maybe they're looking for fame or approval of others in their group. On a basic level, they're motivated by the same thing that motivates every human being, the search for meaning. They're just going about it in a very despicable and vicious way. Now, this podcast series on Ecclesiastes is about one man's desperate search for meaning in his fragmented world. Ecclesiastes, which we've said before, means the teacher. He's an astute observer of human life, and he's wondering if this whole thing is just pointless, if life itself is just an exercise in futility, like we're caught in a maze and there's no exit. 
We saw in chapter 1 that the author Solomon was king over Israel. He had unlimited financial resources, unlimited power. God had granted him tremendous wisdom, but his wisdom turns out to be something of a double-edged sword because it propels him to go on this frustrating quest to dissect life to see how all the pieces fit together. I mentioned last week that he outlined six main avenues that he travels to try and find meaning or satisfaction or happiness in his life. The first uh, uh, main avenue was wisdom. And we saw how Solomon concluded that wisdom was futile and a chasing after wind because though wisdom is good for pointing out the problems, wisdom alone cannot change the human heart. And so now we're in chapter two, and he quickly ticks off the other five avenues or highways that he's traveled to try and find meaning. So let's hear chapter two, verses one through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will experiment with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought, bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, had a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and in this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. One thing you have to say about Solomon, he didn't do anything halfway. When he decided to remove the restraints from his life, he dove in the deep end head first. He went full speed, pedal to the metal. He said, come on now, I'm going to experiment with pleasure. I'm going to test it to the max and see what happens. He went all in and he could afford to because he had all the money in the world and no one to tell him what to do, no one to hold him accountable, no watchdog except his own conscience. And he had stopped listening to that a long time ago. This whole experiment was a road trip into what the philosophers would call hedonism the unashamed pursuit of personal pleasure. And in this way, Solomon would feel very much at home with us today. We don't use the word hedonism too much, but that accurately describes the dominant mentality of most people in our part of the world. Hedonism sounds pagan, so excessive, sort of slimy. And Solomon certainly went down that path, as we'll see in a minute. We don't like to think of ourselves in that way. Maybe the Charlie Sheens of the world, but not us. We're more sophisticated than that. So our hedonism comes across this way. My feelings are the most important thing. When life revolves around your feelings, that's hedonism. Let me say that again. When life revolves around your feelings, that is hedonism. And whether people realize it or not, this is the way most people operate. 
People make decisions based on how they feel at any particular moment. Whatever their impulse is at that particular moment, that's what they do. People live impulsively. They don't live on the basis of some code of conduct, a system of morality, a well-thought-out set of beliefs. Most people live impulsively. They exist in this moment, and that's all that counts. Whatever they feel in this moment, that's what they do, because deep down, most people don't really believe that there's a higher meaning beyond what I can experience in this moment. There's no morality beyond what I feel is right for me in this moment. No universal truths to guide only what is true for me. There are no moral absolutes, only what I feel and what I want right now. And God help you if you ever suggest that people should restrain their impulses or that some desires are morally wrong. Who are you to judge? Who are you to tell me what to do? You're immediately canceled, labeled as a bigot, a Neanderthal, for suggesting that there might be universal truth, a universal right and wrong. No, we defend our hedonism. There is only what is right or wrong for me, and I decide for me. You decide for you. Society's laws are just the arbitrary referee when our desires clash. There is no higher truth than what I feel. The sense that our personal feelings are the only thing that counts is so deeply embedded in our culture we don't even see it. Most people, including most Christians, live their lives this way by impulse and by feelings because if it feels good, we do it. And that's hedonism in a nutshell. So Solomon describes five facets of his hedonism, his hedonistic life here in chapter two. The first one is laughter. Imagine how he filled his palace with jesters, the stand-up comics of the ancient world. Didn't have TV, no internet, no movies, no TikTok videos, no video games, no newspapers, nothing. <coughs> what he had was the power to bring all the entertainers of the world, all the circus acts, all the jugglers, all the bearded ladies and sword swallowers, anything to distract him from the gnawing emptiness in his heart. He wanted to zone out. He wanted to chill. He wanted to relax and be entertained. He needed some junk food for the mind, anything to ease the stress and the tension he was feeling. The comics weren't that funny after a while, and Solomon got bored of their attempts at humor, sort of like today. So laughter didn't work. Then in the next heartbeat, he added booze. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. That's what will turn the circus into a real party. Let the alcohol flow. That's how we're going to have fun. This is what will make this life feel worthwhile. Just open the tap and let everyone get as wasted as they want. I'll throw the biggest, baddest booze fest parties on the planet. How many TV commercials are selling that same message? And that was what Solomon did. Solomon's parties were legendary. They would make spring break in New Orleans look like a preschool. They would make the Playboy Club look like a convent. He partied like there was no tomorrow. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, as it describes the menu for just one of these daily parties that Solomon threw at his palace. And I quote, Solomon's daily provisions were five and a half tons of the finest flour, 11 tons of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle that would be free of range beef, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Unquote. It's estimated that, that, that that amount of food could feed between 10 and 20,000 people per day. Per day. This is one heck of a party. And this went on every day. He had the world's largest entourage. 
And like all the leeches that attract, attach themselves to celebrities today, people love Solomon as long as he was paying the bills and providing the booze. Alcohol is the easy road for so many people to start to follow. That's mainly because it's legal, but also because it's temporarily effective. It's a drug that numbs the senses. Alcohol can temporarily reduce tension, reduce stress that people are feeling. So it gives a false sense of happiness with its drug-induced feeling. And when used in excess, it gives people an excuse to do things they wouldn't normally do. They say, well, I was drunk, as though that excuses things, as though that makes things okay. A lot of bad things happen when people are drinking. A lot of evil comes out of people when they're drunk. I mean, for example, date rape. It's e epidemic among college, high school students. Young ladies, listen up. Please don't put yourself in a position of regret by getting drunk like that. It's not smart. There are people who will take advantage of you. It happens all the time. And guys, the same message is for you. Don't compromise your integrity, your self-respect, just to fit in with a group of guys or teammates or quote-unquote brothers who really couldn't care less about you or your future. People who encourage you to go down the road of alcohol, they're not really your friends. The misuse of alcohol is not just among young adults. It affects every age group, from drunk drivers to people who just need that drink just to take the edge off. It destroys more marriages, more families, more relationships and careers than any other single thing that I can think of. Once when I was in seminary many years ago, I was uh, at a soup kitchen in downtown Boston and overheard these two homeless guys, you know, who were talking in the food line. And they were talking to each other about all this complicated, very advanced astrophysics. And I went up to them and kind of got to know them a little bit, found out they both had been tenured professors at Harvard University who were now just living on the street. They'd lost everything to alcohol. It is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. After a while, the party life wasn't as exciting. Solomon got bored again, the old ennui, as Frank Sinatra sang. So Solomon poured himself into his work to try and find meaning for his life. He was going to build something, anything, and through his labor, he thought he would find what he was looking for, recognition, uh, adulation, uh, fame. He starts building things, and his first project is a new palace. It took him 13 years to complete his palace with unlimited resources. He built a temple that took seven years to complete, used 153,000 workers. He built gardens and reservoirs and orchards and parks. He threw himself into urban renewal, into this, into this work, hoping it would give him a sense of significance and value and satisfaction. Solomon became a workaholic, determined to make his mark no matter what the cost. Work consumed his life consumed his every waking hour, consumed his sleep. All these good things he was building would beautify Jerusalem and make it the envy of the ancient world. He could never relax, though, could never detach, could never get away from the work. Does that sound like anyone you know? Work can be just as addictive as alcohol. If you can never let it go, you're an addict. If you can ne never get it off your mind, you're an addict. So many people try to find their meaning and their value in their work, but it's a chasing after the wind. He says in verse 7, I bought, I acquired. He bought all kinds of things, musicians to follow him around like a mariachi band, orchestras, boy bands, pop stars, you name it. He bought gold and silver. Folks, bling is actually nothing new. You know, Solomon was bedecked with it. He bought servants and slaves to wait on his every whim. He bought wives. He bought mistresses. 
He bought whatever money could buy because he had so much money, he never had to balance his checkbook. And he wanted everyone to know how wealthy he really was. And so buying things became another one of his passions. He switched from being a workaholic to being a shopaholic. You know, psychologists have studied the fact that people experience a sense of pleasure when they buy things. It actually alters the brain chemistry. It's a buyer's high, but it is short-lived. Now, we're all good at buying things, at spending money, as a means of trying to feel good. And studies show that only about 25% of people who go to shopping malls know what they want to buy. The other 75%, they're just doing it as a form of therapy. They're depressed. They're bored. They're trying to find something that will temporarily make them happy. They don't know what it is, and so they walk into the call with their credit card, just looking for something, anything to buy, something to possess. Buying on the internet does the same thing. Shopping online can give that same rush as buying in person, that click. It feels good. We get a sense of status from what we buy. We do it with the labels on our handbags, the logo on our golf clubs, the emblem on our cars, the patch on our coats. We are the richest, most affluent, educated, successful society in the history of the world, and we're also the most depressed, the most bored society in the history of the world. We have stuff, lots and lots of stuff. Just look at the garage sales in the spring. Look at all the storage units. And we keep buying things, trying to get happy, and it lasts for a few hours, a few days, maybe a few weeks, and then we're restless again. We call it buyer's remorse. Solomon would say it's meaningless and a chasing after wind. You see, life is a leaky bucket. The more we pour in, the faster it leaks out the bottom. Adding more stuff will never make a person happy. And so then, what's left? Solomon uses people for his personal and sexual gratification. And this is where Solomon's heart was most corrupt. This is where his wisdom failed him completely. He collected women as objects, trophies for his harem. He chased a fantasy world. It's described this way in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and I quote, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. Is there any sadder passage in the book of the Bible, in the books of the Bible, when Solomon has this great gift of wisdom and he throws it away? You see, every kick has a kickback. Every kick has a kickback. Solomon collected women, often as part of his treaties with other nations. The kings exchanged daughters to each other's harems, basically as hostages so that one nation wouldn't attack another nation. And then they were used as toys and discarded to make room for the new ones. This was something God had specifically forbidden. God's plan for marriage was one man and one woman, not any other combination. You have heard the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, Solomon was corrupted. His heart grew cold towards God. Sex didn't satisfy him like he thought it would. And he was chasing a fantasy 
Happiness was always just beyond his reach. He worshipped all these pursuits, but they were all false idols that let him down. He became an alcoholic, workaholic, shopaholic, finally a sexaholic. Solomon's life was spinning out of control. He was just about to hit bottom. And then verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Let's skip down to verse 17. He says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all these things I had told for, toiled for. And then verse 20. And my heart began to despair. Folks, if the story stopped there, the conclusion would read like another celebrity suicide or accidental drug overdose. This is what it sounds like, but a faint glimmer of light kind of pierces his darkness. It doesn't flood the room. No, at this point, it's just a single kind of laser beam of light that cuts through his darkness in verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Finally, Solomon begins to see that God can't be just another addition to his already busy life, not just another hobby that he adds to his long list of pursuits. God has got to be at the center, or it all falls apart. You know, in the year 1670 AD, the French mathematician and Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote this, There is a God-shaped hole or vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known to us through Jesus Christ. You see, all those five things Solomon pursued were not wrong in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong, intrinsically wrong with laughter, nothing intrinsically wrong with alcohol when used in moderation or work or possessions or sexual desire. But when you try to put any of those in the center of your life, they don't fit and your heart is out of balance. And that's when it becomes twisted. Christ belongs in the center. It's the only thing that fits. And when loving him is truly the center of your desires, then he can bring all those other things into proper alignment. Remember the Gospels when Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God wants us to enjoy life fully, but we can't do that unless we put him at the center. Not any of those other things. They aren't evil by themselves, but whenever we take God's good things and try to make them a God, they get twisted into something destructive. Life is meant to revolve around a divine center. That's why I've always liked the phrase Christ-centered church. That's more than just a motto. It's the recipe for experiencing life fully, the way God intended, so that we can enjoy the life we are given. I hope you really think about your life this week. Like what avenues have you been driving on? What, are, what have you been chasing? What are you hoping will bring meaning and satisfaction to your life? A relationship, a job, a drink, a pill, a fantasy, a TV show, more money, more stuff, more family. Don't waste your life chasing the wrong thing. Put Christ in the center and then let your world revolve around him. Have a great day. <music> 